have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. This is God's holy inspired word. Let us pray. Gracious Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we come to you now and once again ask for your help. Lord, that you would open our ears, our minds, our hearts, that you, Lord, would give us a sight to see. Lord, that you would help us even to obey all that we hear today, for it is your holy and true word that is being spoken to us. God, we pray that you would give us grace. Lord, I decrease that you may increase. Be glorified in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Well, brothers and sisters, I greet you once again in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And I do once again uh, welcome you on this Lord's Day Sabbath as we uh, continue, but also come to the end, uh, near the end, of our series on liturgy. Moving forward this morning, we will be considering the, the proclamation of the gospel and the absolution or pardon of sin. The proclamation of the gospel and the absolution or pardon of sin. Uh, Pastor Isaiah, this afternoon, would have been dealing with the reading of the law and confession of sin. Uh, instead, this afternoon, we will be dealing with uh, the law and its relationship to the believer. The law and its relationship to the believer. This morning, though, we are going to continue uh, with this gospel and proclamation of gospel and absolution of sin. Saints, what happens when we worship? What happens when we worship? Uh, most of us should have, I think, a better understanding of how to answer that question now. We know that there is a covenantal conversation that is taking place between God and us when we gather for worship. God calls us to worship Him, and we respond. There is, if you will, a holy dialogue taking place when we worship. God is speaking to His people, and His people are responding in the manner that God has commanded them, us, to respond. As this dialogue between God and His people is taking place, we are being changed. As this dialogue between God and His people is taking place, we are being changed. Let me ask you this. Would it not be impossible for us to have God speak to us and us not be changed? Aren't there some people in your lives who, when you speak to them, you feel that you are all the more better just by the time that you have spent with them? Are there not people that when you have conversations with them, you say to them afterwards, thank you for that conversation. It benefited my soul more than you can imagine. Well, if we can say that about creatures, 
How much more can we say that about our God when He calls us to worship with Him and calls us into a covenantal, divine conversation with Him? Brothers and sisters, when we worship, we are changed. As we attend the gathering of the saints and engage in spirit and truth worship, our minds are being instructed. We are growing in knowledge. We are growing in our understanding of God's will. In spiritual wisdom that increases our love for Christ and our being conformed into Christ's likeness. We are being changed. Brothers and sisters, even now, you are being changed. Paul said in Romans chapter 8 that the goal of our salvation is that we be conformed to the image of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That we would one day, like Christ, be glorified. Peter said in 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 3, seeing that His divine power has granted us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. For by these He has granted to us His precious promises and magnificent promises, so that by them, listen to this, you, we, may become partakers of the divine nature, that we may share in divine nature, that we may be made like Christ, having escaped the corruption that is in the world. When you come for worship, you are escaping corruption. When you come for worship, you are escaping the world that wants you to be squeezed into its mold and you are being shaped and fashioned after Christ. You are being changed. You are being molded. Minds are being renewed. God is changing you. Uh, Therefore, we should not be hasty to run back out into the world. We should say, no preacher, preach longer. Uh, No, let us sing another song. Uh, No, let me spend more time in fellowship, for it is here, more than anywhere else throughout the rest of this week, that you are being changed and conformed to Christ. It is here, during this particular time, that you are more than any other time throughout the week, transformed and changed into Christ-likeness. You should say, there is no other place that I would rather be. The life of the believer is summed up in the work of the triune God conforming us to Himself. What's the testimony of the believer? The testimony of the believer is this. God is making us like Him. It's the work of the triune God in all of our lives. We are being made like Christ. And again, the time in which this this word that you know, deification, is most at work is when the saints gather for worship, Sabbath after blessed Sabbath. When we worship in the manner that God has commanded, attending by faith, we, listen to this, we are being put to death in one sense and made alive in another. When we gather for worship, we are being put to death in one sense and made alive in another. The former self, with its holding fast to the deeds of the flesh. The former self, with its holding fast to, as was said last week, first traditions, if they are bad ones. That former self, holding fast to selfish preferences. 
holding fast to wrong doctrines, holding fast to simple desires, is Sabbath after blessed Sabbath being put to death through spirit and truth worship. In one sense this morning, you are dying. In one sense this morning, God by His Spirit is putting you to death. The washing of the Word. The blessed Lord's Supper. Hearing and praying God's will. Publicly identifying with Christ in the waters of baptism. Weekly hearing the law and the gospel. Brothers and sisters, we are being changed. As this covenantal conversation is taking place, we are being conformed to Christ. Our old self has died with Christ. Is dying with Christ. And will die with Christ. You've heard of the the tenses of salvation. You have been saved. You are being saved. And you will be saved. You have heard the tenses of being holy. You have been made holy. You are being made holy. And you will be holy. This happens week after week. Sabbath after Sabbath. Yes, throughout the week. Yes, you may say, I've learned a lot as I go to work. But you don't learn more than you learn when you gather for worship. It is what you learn when you gather for worship that helps you to put into practice the things that you experience as you go to work. The weekly proclamation of the gospel and the law and the absolution, the pardon of sin is used by the Holy Spirit to make us like Christ. He uses, God does, this hearing of His law, the confession of sin, repentance, the declaration of the gospel, faith in Christ that is called and pardon of sin to deify us, to make us like Him. Jonathan Cruz in his book, What Happens When We Worship, says, week in and week out, God puts to death the old self of sin through the law and brings to life and sustenance a new creation in Christ through the proclamation of the gospel. If you are in Christ, and if anyone be in Christ, the old has gone, the new has come, you are new creations in Christ Jesus. And this is not a one-time thing, though it is a one-time thing. You have been made a new creation, and you are continually being made a new creature in Christ. Think about it. The Christian that you are today, are you not a better Christian today, today than you were last year? Are you not a better Christian this year than you were two, three, four, five, for some of us, 10, 15 years ago? What is happening to you? You are being made like Christ. And we look ahead and say, I have so much more to go. Yes, you do. Yes, we do. But don't forget to look behind and see how far God by His Holy Spirit has brought you to the praise of His glorious grace. This morning then, with God's help, we shall consider just two points concerning the declaration of the gospel and the pronouncement of pardon or absolution of sin in the liturgy. That is, again, number one, the proclamation of the gospel. Number two, the absolution of sin. First John chapter nine, 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Brothers and sisters, do you realize that Sabbath after Sabbath, you and I are extremely blessed. 
not because of who is speaking to you this morning or who would normally be speaking to you in the afternoon, but you and I are Sabbath after Sabbath blessed because we get to hear the reading of the law of God and the proclamation of the gospel. Every single time we gather for worship, every single time we gather for worship, we hear the law of God which condemns and the gospel of Jesus Christ which saves. Every Sabbath after Sabbath. After hearing the the law of God, which are known as the ten words, they are, worship God alone. Do not worship idols. Do not take the Lord's name in vain. Honor the Sabbath. Keep it holy. Honor your father and mother. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not covet that which is, is your neighbor's. We are called to confess we have sinned and repent of our sins. We confess that God's law is good. There would be no cause for us to confess a sin, which is a violation, a, 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 a breaching There would be no need for us to confess that we have breached something if we did not believe that it was good. Every time we hear the law, we say we confess that we have sinned. Why do we do so? Because it is good. It is good not to lie. It is good not to steal. It is good not to commit adultery. It is good not to take God's name in vain. We confess something that we have done in violation of that which is good. Sabbath after Sabbath. We also know, because we have been made in the image of God, that that we have committed something that we know is good, uh, wrong, against something that we know is good. That makes sense? Uh, We know that we have done something wrong in relationship to something that is good. It has been written on our hearts. We understand what sin is and that sin is not good. All men know this. Romans 1.18 For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness because that which is known about God is evidenced within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have clearly been seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. All men, when they hear the law, or even if they don't hear the law, are without excuse of their breaking the law. There is no person who can come up with a sufficient enough excuse for why the law does not apply to them. The law applies to every single person made in the image of God. We are not guilty of breaking one law. We are guilty of breaking all of God's law. If you have broken one of God's laws, you have broken all of God's law. There is no one who can give a sufficient enough excuse for their breaking of God's law or make the argument that God's law does not apply to them. We can only confess this, that we have suppressed His law, that we have not honored God as God. There is no other excuse or response that God will accept except this, confess and repent. The only response that is appropriate, that will be acceptable to God, when God's law is brought to our attention, 
It's confession and repentance. Friends, what do we deserve in light of our breaking of God's law? What do we deserve? The scriptures say that we deserve God's punishment. That we deserve God's judgment. That we are violators of something that is good. Therefore, we deserve the penalty for breaching God's good law. Abraham said that the judge of the earth only does what is right. Therefore, when God judges anyone who violates His commands, God commits no sin. God commits no sin when He punishes those who break His law. His law is good. God is good. And God also makes it clear that there is no one who is righteous. No one who seeks after God. Not one. Now, what a pity it would be if that was the end of the story. What sadness it would be if the end of the story was this. You have broken God's law. You deserve punishment. And there is no excuses you can give for your breaking of God's law. And there is no one righteous. Not even one. What a pity it would be if that was the very end of our story. If the end of God's dealings with man were simply this, judgment, period. Punishment upon the wicked, period. Imagine if there were no good news. Imagine if there were no light in the darkness. Imagine if there was no Christ who has been offered on the cross for us to look to. Imagine if there was no healing for our souls. But praise be to God, there is good news. Praise be to God, there is light. That light has shined in the darkness. John 1.1 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him. And apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In Him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness. And the darkness did not comprehend it. Meaning, the darkness could not dispel the light. The darkness could not uh, quench the light. Who could rescue us from our depravity? Who could rescue us from the sins that we have committed in Adam and the sins that we have personally committed? John 1.14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw His glory, glory as the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Only one who could assume our nature could heal us from our corruption. The Word who became flesh is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He is the eternal Word. He is the Son of God. The law cannot save. The law has a purpose. It is to condemn. The law's purpose is to reveal our sin and to condemn us to the judgment of God. It teaches us that we can do nothing to save ourselves from our sin. The law, therefore, is an instructor. It tells us, not just that you are condemned, but that you need righteousness. And where will you find it? Where will you find righteousness 
that only God, that God will accept. Only God will accept righteousness. But you and I cannot offer it. Where do we find it? The law causes you and I to look, to look outside of ourselves for a way in which we can escape the judgment of God. But sisters, it will not come from bulls and goats. It will not come from lambs. Something else, someone else must be offered in our place in order for the righteousness of God to be given to us. Praise be to God. The law cannot save us. But John says that grace and truth are revealed in Christ. He has come as the only Savior of the world. All who look to Jesus will be saved. John 3.14 As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes in Him will have eternal life. For God so loved the world. We should pause whenever we run through that verse that we know so well. That He gave His only begotten Son. So that whoever believes in Him will not perish, but have eternal life. Dear brothers and sisters, Lord's Day after Lord's Day, you and I are blessed in that we are reminded of the grace of God in Jesus Christ, who has assumed our flesh that we might be healed. And is this not good news? And isn't it good news that we need to hear again and again and again and again? We were in need of a sacrifice. We were in need of being cleansed. We were in need of our sins being taken away. And God Himself provided the sacrifice for our sin. God is both the offerer and the offering for our sin. John the Apostle says in John 1.7, If we walk in the light as He Himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sins. Brothers and sisters, I need to hear that the blood of Christ has not lost its power. I need to hear, Lord's Day after Lord's Day, that the sting of death has been taken away. I need to hear Lord's Day after Lord's Day that Christ is still reigning on His throne. I need to hear Lord's Day after Lord's Day that Christ has put all of my sin to death. The sin that I have committed. He is putting sin to death now. And if I trust in Christ, He will put sin to death in the future. I need to hear that the goal that Christ has for saving me is to make me like Himself. I need to hear this week after week. Lord's Day after Lord's Day. And so do you. And when we hear it, we are again and again changed and made like our Savior. We are being made like Him as we hear of His perfect and finished work. We are turning away from sin and turning to the one who has defeated sin. Now, here's something that we must ask. Since we have been dealing with liturgy, and that all that we do must be prescribed by God. Is this proclamation of the gospel then? Prescribed by God in our worship. Is what we have done this morning in the reading of the law. 
and in the proclamation of the good news of Christ, is that something that Christ, God Himself has prescribed, given to His people for worship publicly? I confess this. We will find no explicit command in the Scriptures concerning the proclamation of the Gospel in liturgy or in the order of worship. There is not one verse that will say when you gather for worship, you must read the law and proclaim the gospel as a part of your formal worship. You will not find that kind of explicit statement. So then, where do we, where do we come off, if you will, with this um, inserting the law and gospel into our order of worship? Where do we get it from? Let me make another side point. There is not one explicit command anywhere that details what we are to do step by step in the gathering of our worship or in our formal liturgy. Not one. Uh, You will not find anywhere, first you do this, second you do that. Now, this does not mean that We don't have any idea what we're doing. We're just making things up as we go. But rather, we make logical conclusions from the whole of Scripture when it comes to how worship is to be ordered. Specifically, we turn to the New Testament. The Scriptures are where we begin to build our case for why we do what we do. So then... Where can we find evidence that will support what we do when we gather? The first place that we will turn, and we will do some turning this morning, so please have your Bibles handy, is to what the church does after Pentecost. To what the church does after Pentecost. Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. And verse 41. So then, those who had received his word were baptized. That was the the word of Peter who had preached at Pentecost. And that day there were added about 3,000 souls. And they were, listen to what the church does now as they gather. They were devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Here we are given insight into what the church normally did when it gathered for worship. This, These normal occurrences could be called regular or common. They were the common things, the regular things that the church did as it gathered for worship. Now, this morning we are not making a case for on what day did they gather, or even all the other things that they did, the breaking of bread, the fellowship. We could make a case for those on another day. Today, we just want to focus on the one thing, and that is, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They devoted themselves to the teaching of the apostle. Now, what would the apostles have taught? What would the apostles have taught? Well, the apostles were were teaching that which was taught to them. The apostles were teaching that which was taught to them 
in accordance with the scriptures, that being the Old Testament. They were taught what was taught to them by who? By Christ. Christ in the Great Commission commands the disciples to make disciples of all nations, to baptize them, and then to do what? To teach them everything that has been taught to them. What did Christ teach? Uh, Brother, I'm not sure if the air is on, but if you could please turn it down. Christ, in His first proclamation, declares in Matthew 4, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Christ goes about preaching the good news of the kingdom. What is the good news of the kingdom? It is that the kingdom, the kingdom that has been prophesied and anticipated, it has come. The good news of the kingdom is that the kingdom is inaugurated. It is here. The announcement of Christ is that which has been prophesied and that which has been anticipated now is. What is the message of the king of that kingdom? What does the king of the kingdom preach? If you have faith in him, he who has come to bear your sin, then he will remember your sin no more. He is saying that you will be absolved, pardoned of sin, if you place, confess your sin and place your faith in the one who has come to bear your, to bear your sin. You shall be his people and he shall be your God. We shall be citizens. Here's the good news of the kingdom. If you do these things, we shall be citizens of this kingdom. And you will have a place with him on his throne. That sounds like a lot of good news. You shall share in His kingdom and reign with Him, and to His kingdom there will be no end. Is that not good news? Christ has come to save sinners. They need not suffer the punishment that we deserve, because Christ has come to take our punishment upon His shoulders. That is good news. Christ says, Go, tell His disciples, Christ tells His disciples, Go, proclaim, This message, I'm not sure if the air turned on or not, but could you please turn it on? (laughs) As we move forward in the New Testament, we find that the disciples did what? They did exactly what Christ commanded. They began to preach this message of the kingdom of Christ. Now, now, let's look at this thing, at at, at this. Let's go to Rome, to Romans. Um, Let's go to Romans chapter 1. In Paul's letter to the church, the saints who know the gospel. Let me slow down on that. Paul writes a letter to the church of Rome who know the gospel. They are saints. Paul calls them beloved of God. He speaks to these who know the gospel and who are saved of the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. But he does so against the backdrop of unrighteousness that is suppressed by unrighteousness. Paul says there is a righteousness available. But the unrighteous suppress the truth of the law of God. They believe in their suppression that they can make it go away. That it will somehow not apply to them. 
And what they're doing is simply suppressing it. What is Paul doing? He's, to these uh, people who already know God, he's saying, people suppress God's law. And everyone is guilty of it. Romans 1 and 2, Paul makes the point that all men know God even though they don't honor Him as God. They have made a foolish exchange. Romans 1 25, they exchange the truth of God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than Creator who is forever blessed. Amen. And then in verses 29-32, Paul describes those who have broken the moral law of God using descriptions that are from God's law. He says, they're greedy. Sounds like covetous. They're murderers. You've heard that before. They're slanderers. What is that? Liars. They hate God. And they are disobedient to parents. Where have we heard those laws before? Where where have we heard those those violations? They are in God's law. What are we doing? We're building a case for why we use the law in gospel. In Paul's opening letter, the Church of Rome, he begins by bringing to them the law. But then in chapter 3, Paul makes it clear that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But he doesn't leave the hearers in darkness. Romans 3.21 But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. Being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. To the church of Rome who would have gathered on the first day to hear this letter read by their bishop, their elder. Paul presents the law and the gospel. Okay, we see it in in Romans. Where else? Let's go to 1 Corinthians. Uh, As you're turning to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, you should know that there are actually four letters that Paul wrote to the church of Corinth. We only have two of them. In the first letter that we have, 1 Corinthians, Paul says, I've wrote to you before with tears. It's not the first letter, but it is the one that God has reserved for us. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Let's do some work together. 15. Verses, uh, uh, last week, there were some guests who said, why do, you, why do you do all of these things in your order of worship? Where do we find that in Scripture? And I said, everywhere in Scripture. This is helpful then for anybody who comes and says, why do you guys do the things that you do? You can turn them to all of these verses that we're going to. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 1 through 4. Paul, at the very end of his letter, says this. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which is preached to you, which you also received, and in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast to the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I deliver to you... As of first importance, what I, first, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Then He appeared, and we can go on and on. Paul has, we assume, already in his first letter, shared the Gospel with the, with the church of Corinth. He is most likely the one who planted the church in Corinth. He's planted the church with the Gospel. He's written to them about the Gospel. And in his subsequent letters... He always reiterates the gospel. Okay. So we have Rome, Romans, and 1 Corinthians. Uh, What about when we get to Galatians? Let's go to Galatians. 
When we come to Galatians, Paul immediately, without wasting time, immediately goes straight after those in the church who are seeking to return to what? The law. Those who are seeking to return to the ceremonial aspects of the law specifically, more specifically, circumcision and all of the things that Moses commanded for the law. Paul goes right after them and says to them, how are you abandoning the gospel for the law? The law cannot save you. He says in Galatians 2 and verse 16, a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law no flesh will be justified. We're building a case that throughout the Scriptures there is this consistent pattern of the law and the gospel being proclaimed in every single one of the epistles. These epistles that would have been read as the church gathered for worship. Not just in the main church, but then it would have been copied and sent to other house churches where they would have heard the law and the gospel. Paul tells the church that the law condemns, but whoever does not obey all that the law commands is guilty of the whole law. No man could ever be justified because the law cannot save. No man has ever kept the whole law except the one who gave the law, the Lord Jesus Christ. Galatians 3.13 Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law having become a curse for us for it is written cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree the church of Galatians again Galatia would, would gather together hear the law and the gospel what about Ephesus? let's go to Ephesians you know this verse very well Ephesians 2 and verse 1 for you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. We were violators of the law. And because of it, we were dead in our sin, Paul says. But Paul doesn't leave us there. Why? Because Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, does not leave us there. Verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with Him, and seated us with Him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in ages to come He might show the surpassing riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no man or no one may boast. Paul gives us what? The law that condemns and the gospel that saves. The guilt of sin and the gift of grace. What about when we move forward? Paul writes to Timothy, his son in the faith. Let's go to 1 Timothy chapter 1. Paul writes to Timothy. You can go to Colossians, Philippians and find the same thing. 1 Thessalonians. 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 9. Paul writing to his son in the faith. 
opening in this first letter, <coughs> realizing, he says, that the, the fact, realizing the fact that the law is not made for the righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinner, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers and immoral men and homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching according to the glorious, serious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who strengthened me because He considered me faithful putting me into service even though I was formerly a blasphemer and persecutor and a violent aggressor yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief and the grace of our Lord our Lord was more abundant more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. It is a trustworthy statement, deserving of full assurance, that Christ came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am uh, foremost of all. What are we hearing? The law and the gospel. Jonathan Cruz says, All scripture can be divided under these two headings, passages commanding law, or passages giving a promise, which is the gospel. Brothers and sisters, The pattern that we see throughout all of the New Testament is this presentation of the law and the gospel. Paul told the church of Corinth that the gospel saves. As the gospel is preached, it has the ability to save those who believe. The power of the gospel is that it justifies those who trust in Christ. The power of the gospel is that it sanctifies those who are sinners and makes us righteous. The power of the gospel, it has the ability to make lost sheep found and people walking in darkness, citizens of the light. The power of the gospel is that it gives sight to the blind and hearing to the deaf. You and I, at one point, were deaf to the gospel, did not have eyes to see the glory of Christ, and God in His mercy opened our ears and opened our eyes. The power of the gospel is that it takes hard-hearted hearts and replaces them with hearts of flesh. The gospel raises the dead. You and I were a race of Lazaruses. And we stinketh. And God in His mercy makes us now a people who are an aroma of life unto life. That is the power of the gospel. And the power of the gospel is that it conforms us and makes us like Christ. You and I desperately need to hear the gospel not just monthly, not annually as often as we gather we need to hear desperately that God has saved us from the penalty of the law through the grace of Jesus Christ in his perfect and finished work we just like all the saints who have read the scriptures over and over again we need to hear the law and the gospel and be cleansed through the hearing of these. We need to hear that the gospel is still good. That Christ has still risen. That He is still alive. And again, the blood of Christ has not lost its power. We need to hear that His throne is forever. And that His promise to return is true. We need to hear that this world is not our home. And that Christ has promised a Sabbath rest to 
to all those, an eternal Sabbath rest to all those who trust in Him. Now, Isaiah and I talked about this. What if there weren't these patterns? Would it still be fitting for us to proclaim the law and the gospel when we gather for worship? The answer is a resounding yes. I didn't even need to go through. Here's the example. Here's the example. Here's the example. It could just be, it is good for our souls to hear the law and the gospel. Let us praise God for the word and for the church that holds fast to the good news that has been passed on to them from Christ. The good news of the kingdom is still proclaimed today. The the apostles have preached it and faithful men have preserved it. You and I are in that line of the faithful who are holding high the flame of the gospel and who will not let its flame go out. Christ will build his church and the gates of hell shall not prevail. Secondly, and this will be much shorter, the absolution of sin. Again, 1 John 1, nine. If we confess our sin, He is faithful and righteous to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. When we confess our sin, we have an assurance from God that He will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It is the assurance of pardon or the assurance of what is known as absolution. Absolution, it's a new word for most of us, including myself. It comes from the Latin word meaning acquittal which some of you know, or pardon, to be acquitted, not guilty, or pardoned, no sin, no guilt. It is the liturgical practice, listen to this, of publicly and formally pronouncing the forgiveness of sin on all who confess their sin and repent. The minister has been called by God to declare the full counsel of God, and he declares the law. He he, uh, calls the people who are hearing to confess their sins and to repent. The minister has also been called to declare that God forgives or pardons all who confess and repent of their sin. From this, some have um, accused those who practice the absolution of sin of being too Roman Catholic to Roman Catholic. Matter of fact, those of you who grew up in the Roman Catholic Church, you may remember not public confession and forgiveness, but private confession and forgiveness. This most often happened when you would go to your parish priest. You would go to confession and he would be behind a veil. And you would go to him and say, Bless me, Father, for I have sinned. They will ask, When was the last time that you confessed? And you will say, When? Then you will confess your sins. And the priest, he would take it upon himself to say that you are forgiven of your sins and then assign to you a certain amount of prayers in order to satisfy God's forgiveness for your sin. Some of you may remember that. Some of you may have good or bad memories of that. That is not at all what we practice here in the absolution of sin. That is not at all what we practice here Uh, It has come to my knowledge that the Roman Catholic Church does not practice public confession of sin, nor public absolution of sin either, public pardon. 
But this practice of absolution is all but lost in the 21st century. In the average church, the public weekly reading of the law and the declaration of pardon is not a part of the regular order of worship. In most churches, and I said this to Pastor Isaiah, um, average churches outnumber reformed churches at least 10 to 1. When I was in Hemet, California, preaching there, they were the only reformed church within 50 miles. Were there churches in that city? Of course. Were there any reformed churches? Only one. In the average church, the reading of the law is not a common practice. In the average church, the confession of sin publicly is not a common practice. And in the average church, the proclamation of the gospel and the pardon of sin is not practice. So that when people come to this church and they go, this is altogether different than what I've experienced in most churches. You're telling me. In many ways, churches today... If the gospel is not distorted, it's altogether not consistently preached. If it's not distorted, it's not altogether consistently. Maybe every now and then. Maybe I went there and I heard the gospel. Good for you. You came on a good day. Not consistently preached. So then what does the minister, these are all synonymous, minister, elder, bishop, what does he do? To assure, ensure that the people of God have been forgiven. The elders make a declaration of pardon of sin to those who have repented of their sin and trust in Christ alone. The minister does this as the mouthpiece of God declaring only what God declares. Let me be clear. The minister has no inherent ability to forgive sins on his own accord. The minister does not stand here and say, On my authority your sins are forgiven. Not in the least. The religious leaders were frustrated with Christ when speaking to the paralytic. He said, take courage, son. Your sins are forgiven. They were in an outrage. And they had a reason to be outraged. If Christ was not God, for only God could forgive sins, they said. This is true. And our Lord made it clear that He is equal with God. When he commanded the man to rise and walk, and the man obeyed. Michael Horton says, The minister has no inherent power to forgive sins, but Christ does. And he, Christ, calls the minister to proclaim in his name both the law and the gospel, to close the gate of heaven and to open it by the ministry of the word. You've heard those verses before. Matthew 16 and Matthew 18. Uh, 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 You are to proclaim what heaven proclaims and When you proclaim what heaven proclaims, you are either opening the kingdom to the believer or closing the kingdom to the unbeliever. The elder must always be clear. It is on the authority of God's word alone that anyone is forgiven of sin. If you confess your sins, God is faithful and true, John says, to forgive you of your sins. Your sins are not forgiven because of some power within us, not in the least. Your sins are forgiven because you have confessed, repented, and because God alone has power to forgive sins. And God alone has promised on oath that He pardons all those who repent and trust in Christ. That is good news every week. For every single week, you and I 
wrestle against sin. You and I are pushing sin back. Uh, one minister has said, we should first of all not wrestle against sin. We should first of all not even seek to grapple with it. Meaning this, stay away from it and then you won't wrestle with it. Most of us wrestle or grapple with it because we decide to say, come on sin, let's grapple. Leave it alone and there will be no grappling. But for most of us, we do grapple with sin. And what we need when we gather for worship is to hear that our sins have been pardoned by the one who has forgiven every single one of them. We need to hear that. Pastor, can I come to the Lord's Supper today? Am I worthy? No, you are not. But God in Christ Jesus has pardoned your sin and He has made you worthy through His worthiness. You are not trusting in that you have been good enough to come to the supper today. You are trusting that Christ has been good enough to allow you to come and fellowship with Him at His table today. Bring your sins to Christ. Christ will pardon them. Christ will absolve them. You know what it means to absolve something, to make it go away. Brothers and sisters, we need... I need, maybe not you, I personally need to hear my sins have been absolved by the blood of Jesus Christ. He has cleansed me by His blood. Calvin said concerning the public pardon of sin, when the whole church stands, as it were, before God's judgment seat, when the law is written, confesses itself guilty and has its whole soul or has its sole refuge in God's mercy, It is no common or light solace to have present there the ambassador of Christ armed with the mandate of reconciliation by whom it hears proclaimed its absolution. It's not a small thing to hear the minister say your sins on the authority of God's word alone are forgiven. John Calvin And every faithful minister says, don't treat that moment lightly. Don't go through the motions. You and I are guilty. God says, but I forgive you. It is the responsibility of the elder, which Pastor Isaiah will talk about next week, to proclaim this forgiveness to all who repent. And saints, it is a blessing to hear once more that we are forgiven. Uh, John 20 and verse 23. Christ says to His disciples, If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you withhold the sins of any, it is withheld. It is the exercising of the keys of the kingdom which has been entrusted to the church. Matthew 16, Matthew 18. When you confess your sins and repent and turn to Christ, heaven's proclamation is you are forgiven. If you withhold your sins and say, I will not repent, I will hold on to my sin. The declaration of heaven is you are not forgiven. The minister, by the authority of God, calls all who have ears to hear to repent. And if you do, heaven says, then you are forgiven. The gates of the kingdom are open for you. Not by man. Uh, Peter doesn't have the, the keys. No pope has the keys. No particular minister has the keys. God has given the keys to the church as a whole. And we proclaim what God has declared. If you repent, the gates are open. If you will not repent, 
The gates are closed. It's what God declares from His Word. The Heidelberg Reformer says that when the minister absolves through the authority of God's Word, the corporate assembly, they, the minister, declare and publicly testify to the grace of God and the remission of sins to such as are truly penitent, repentant. That is, to those who live in true faith and repentance. Martin Bucer, uh, in his liturgy uh, written for Strasbourg College, says, when the congregation assembles on Sundays or the Sabbath, the minister admonishes them to confess their sins, to pray a pardon, to pray for pardon, and makes his confession to God on behalf of the congregation and declares the absolution of sin to the faithful. Therefore, saints, when we have a time of confession, it is not time for our minds to go other places. It's not time for us to say, I think I'll take a a one-minute cat nap. We must be supremely disciplined during that moment. We must be supremely mentally disciplined to say, Dear God, here are my sins. And will you remember every single one of them? You may not. There may be one glaring sin that you know you have done. There may be one. I know that I spoke to this person wrongly and I should not have. And I feel guilty about it. Lord, forgive me of that sin. Help me to do right. There may be a host of sins. And there may not be one thing that you can think of particularly. But you know that some way, in thought, word, or deed, you have not lived up to the righteous standard of God. That is your time to say, here is my sin. Here I am. Here is my heart. Examine me. See all of the ways within me that are not pleasing to you, Lord, and forgive me of them. The confession of sin, it is a blessing from God. God gives to us a time in His presence where we can acknowledge and confess our sins and repent of them. And not only that, but to hear that we are forgiven. Slow down. Most churches today are, are treated as, a, as some kind of entertainment show where things have to be kept moving and moving and quick and, and, and people's attention span is this short. Keep it moving. Last week we heard of of contemplation. Slow down. It is opportunity for us to contemplate. And when we confess, we are given time to contemplate. Here is my sin. Deeply. And not only to ask God to forgive us, but to help Ask Him for help to put it to death. Kill that in me. I know that I I am often angry and impatient. Kill that in me. I know that I am often unloving. And Lord, I do not show the joy of my salvation like I know that I should. Kill that in me. Kill that in me in one sense and make me alive in another. Are you that intentional when it's time to confess? Or is it just your time to close your eyes? time is to cause us to look to Christ who has defeated the power of sin imagine again saints if there was no proclamation of forgiveness in Christ 
Not only no, no gospel, but no proclamation of forgiveness. Imagine if there was no one who bore our sins and no one who took our infirmities. Imagine if the minister could not on God's authority stand before you and declare, your sins have been pardoned by God. Paul says we would be the most pitied of people in all of the world. But, uh, Horton says again, after, if after reading the law of God and confession, the congregation does not hear God's word of grace, mercy, and forgiveness, they are left despairingly and hopeless. The law focuses on man's moral inability and the effect of sinners is mourning. We should mourn over our sin. Just not be okay with it. In the reading of the law, we are reminded afresh that we are not only those who have sinned, but those who have received grace from Christ. We are reminded again that we are cleansed, pardoned, that we are forgiven. And it is no wonder then why the psalmist says to us, Enter his gates with thanksgiving in your heart. Enter his courts with praise. Because we've been forgiven. Praise God for this. That you can be sure that in this church, God help us, every time you gather for worship, you will hear the gospel. Every time. You can be sure of this, that when you bring family and friends to this church, they will hear the gospel. Every single time. They will hear the law, the judgment that they deserve. They will hear a call to confess and repent. And they will hear the good news. That Christ, if you confess and repent and place your faith in Him alone, Christ will will forgive you and save you from all your sin. The declaration of forgiveness, of pardon, of absolution makes it clear to all, to the young and to the old, makes it clear how we can be delivered from sin by trusting in Christ alone. Your forgiveness, little ones, does not come from the elders. It does not come from the church. It does not come from the sacraments. Your forgiveness comes from Christ and Christ alone. And we declare what Christ has declared. Based upon His promises, if we believe them, we are forgiven. Forgiveness is forever linked to the person and work of Christ. On behalf of His people. And is declared by his ministers. What a great comfort that is for us. We have talked about how worship is a covenantal conversation between God and his people. The time of confession and absolution is a vital part of this renewing of covenantal promises between God and his people. We are, God is renewing his promises to us and we are renewing our commitment to him. And this renewal, this, as from my old days, this rededicating, if you will, it is a cause for great joy and celebration. God has not abandoned us, and He never will. Let's pray.